Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Praise the Lord. Amen. Somebody clap for Jesus. Amen. Come on, give it up for Jesus. Amen. What a powerful, powerful worship. I've got to be honest with you. I, we were at another church this morning. We were preaching in Camden, New Jersey, uh, with an Assemblies of God movement. And I'm going to tell you, uh, that was a, a, a grace of God filled that place. But the worship in this house, <laughs> listen, y'all need to pack that up, put that on the road, straight up. I mean, that's, that stuff was good. I mean, y'all look white and sound black. I mean, you got to, somebody say glory to God. I know I offended somebody, right? Somebody's offended? Uh, if, you're, if, you're an, if you're an introvert, I'm not your preacher. Um, extrovert, you're going to love this. The next 40 minutes is going to be good for you, amen? Uh, extend your hands toward me. I am a reformed charismatic, which means I believe and I have pneumatological sensitivities. I lean not on my own understanding, but the spirit of God to move in his church. God said he would build his church and that the very gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And so agree with me in prayer. Father, this is your church and these are your people. Hide me. Uh, You've already filled this place with uh, your train. Now, Lord God, touch our hearts. Unclog our ears. Put us into that place, oh God, where we can uh, receive, be transformed and challenged. Be high and lifted up in this place, God. And Father, we come against every principality, every power, everything that's not of you, every spirit that's contrary to you, every distraction, we come against generation curse. Father, we come against the devil in the name of Jesus. We plead the blood of Jesus, oh God. And Father, I pray, oh God, that you would do something so specific. Father, that people leave here forever changed. That this part of Brooklyn will be lit, Father, with revival. That people would say, what's happening at Bridge Church for your glory? In Jesus' name. Somebody say amen. amen. Somebody say amen. 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 As, as a pastor stated, I'm so honored to be invited. Uh, your pastor, uh, who is now the rep for your denomination, the Southern Baptist Church in the metro New York area, we're excited about that at City to City and uh, so looking forward to, to, uh, to growing with you in ministry and supporting the other church planters that will be coming out of this house and the movement. Somebody say amen. amen. Right? Because a healthy mission, say this with me, a healthy missional church. A healthy missional church. Say it again. A healthy missional church, a healthy missional church. Always, grows always grows and always goes. always goes. A healthy missional church grows people and then sends people. It doesn't, because it gets bigger in number, doesn't mean it's healthy. A healthy barometer is when you start to send pastors out and send planters out to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. My role as the senior director of City to City's church planting is everything having to do with church planting. And I never woke up one day and said I was going to be a church planter. But what I did see was I was was an executive director in a parachurch context called Urban Youth Alliance. Urban Youth Alliance was an adjudicated youth uh, program um, uh, accompanied with other ministries that was dedicated in the South Bronx to reaching the least, the last, and the lost. 
They were known primarily for their Seekers Christian Fellowships, which is a truncated version of what InterVarsity is for colleges, Seekers is for high schools, and their Bronx Connect moment, or their Bronx Connect unit turned into a chapel service that eventually turned into Promised Land Project, which eventually turned into the Promised Land Church. Uh, we planted seven churches in trying to meet uh, the most struggling, gang-related, strung out, challenged, economically marginalized young adults in the South Bronx. In the South Bronx, you've got 162 languages, you've got 130 different countries, you've got the highest gang violence, the highest social ill, the highest issues you could find in the city belong to East New York and belong to the South Bronx and Camden and Trenton, New Jersey. And so in that context, where it was rich with issue, rich with depression, rich with darkness, God called us to plant a church. And to give context, I wanted to just share a little bit of that narrative with you. Because we never said we're going to do this, we just submitted to the process of what the Holy Spirit was already doing. Uh, the Spirit, of, let, me, let, let, let me help you. The, you know, the Spirit's already working in Brooklyn. You didn't come and plant here and help God. You, you know God planted you here to help him. You got upset with me already. I'm sorry. You got to deal with me next Sunday too. So, you know, <laughs> tighten your belt, you know. What happens? The Spirit of God was moving in such a way. We had 45 different denominations that were funding us. And they turned around. They said to us, please stop sending us these gangbangers, these lesbian young ladies. Stop sending us all these drug addicts. Stop sending us these kids with all these tattoos and their pants hanging down off their knees with their bandanas. And they're coming up in here with all this hip-hop culture. Will you please stop sending us these people? We're trying to run a church. That's what I said. And I said to one pastor, I said, Pastor, you're the church. You're the solution. You're supposed to be the response. How is it that you're calling us to tell you? Matter of fact, we're making it easy for you. You don't even need an evangelism or outreach director. We're sending you people that need the Lord. All you've got to do is embrace them. Make a space for them. Learn their names before you judge what they're wearing. Could you just try to be the church? Michael, I hear you, brother, but everybody's not into your type of ministry. Ooh, let me tell you right now, you know, I'm Latino. I'm half Latino, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and all of them, 15th and Madison, I come out of Spanish and black Harlem. I had to catch myself. I said, self, catch yourself. <laughs> and I held myself just like this, catch yourself, because you're about to fall on this, pastor. That may be a little bit too hood for you because you're Southern Baptist. You know, hey, well, well, we in Brooklyn. Where Brooklyn at, right? Right? And so what happens is that we turn around and, and we have this situation and, and then the young man comes back to me and, you know, he's got his bop and he's got his rhythm and his swag and he says, you know, Pastor Mike? You know, because they all talk with the, the expressions of the hands. They, you know, I, I had to deconstruct that when I went into grad school because we, in the, you know, we talk like this as ethnic uh, people in our culture. He says, you know, Pastor Mike, why can't this be our church? And I said, but we're not a church. We're a parent church. And our function is to help you get services. If you need short-term occupational training, we'll help you with that. If you need mentoring and counseling, we'll help you with that. If you need me to get you a lawyer, I'll help you with that. If you need me to pray for you, I can help you with that. But we are not a church. That night, I went home, and I'm at the dinner table. You ever walked away and had an invitation from the Holy Ghost, and then the Holy Ghost come back and tell you, excuse me, that was an invitation? And you turn around and you have a, 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 a moment of conviction come upon you. 
You ever been convicted in this? You ever walked away and said this? The Lord done said something to me and I just didn't catch it. It went over my head. So I'm sitting down there trying to kill this pork chop and my, the pork chop was already dead, but I was trying to get it in. You know what I mean? You know, I was giving it a buck 50 left and right. And then, you know, I told my wife, Elizabeth, I said, Elizabeth, you know, this kid, he just said this and I'm heartbroken and I don't, and she's, you know, she's over there shaking up the beans or something, messing with the frijoles or whatever. And I'm saying, pero mommy, you know, we're not in church. I'm sorry, I'll go bilingual once in a while. I am Puerto Rican, forgive me. And she says, pero papi, you know, hey, you know, mommy, papi, we use that as a term of endearment. She says, the Lord told you, you're called. I was already pastoring in one church. She says, this is an opportunity for a new church. I said, well, what if we were to dedicate a, a room and that'd be a chapel and they can come in and find spiritual formation in that context, right? We started that. And that little room got so packed out with gangbangers and with people from the street and homeless that we had to get it into the foyer area. And then that got so packed out that we had to move into the community center. And then that got so packed out, we said we need a building because this has turned into a church. So I, I stepped into church planting, not because I felt I'm gonna plant a church. What I did was I listened for the crying. Yes. Come on. Su Chan Ra, a personal friend and mentor, a professor at North Park Theological Seminary says, you don't ever have to drum up ministry. If you learn to have an ear and a sensitivity to where the lamentation is, yes. wherever you hear crying, you're always gonna find Jesus. Yes. Did anybody hear what I just said? If you listen for the crying in Brooklyn, you're going to find ministry. And ministry in today's context is what I came to talk about today. I wanted to give you a backdrop of what we did, and I wanted to share with you that we planted seven churches out of that one chapel. Seven churches across the country. And after we started the chapel, we turned around and we looked at what was happening in the hood, our hood, our context. And we saw this one basketball court where all the young men kept getting arrested. And we found the statistics that said if we stop the, 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 the kids from, from, from getting caught up, they'll stop going to juvenile detention and they'll stop going to jail. And what, what winds up happening is that as we started to intermediate and to start programs, we found that education was that thing that could sever the pipeline to incarceration for African-American and Latinos in the South Bronx. Somebody say amen. Yeah. How many know education is power? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Education, and I'm sorry, but we have the most theologically illiterate church today in the 21st century. Everybody can Google it, and you can't Google a fresh anointing. And you can't Google revival. And you can't Google everything. Somebody say amen. The reality is you can't Google everything, everything, and, some, and sometimes you just gotta sit at the feet of Jesus. So sitting at his feet brought us into this place of advocacy and then we planted a school. I never said, let me start a school or schools. Well, now we're going on our third school in charter. It's $100 million in education, seven churches. We're serving hundreds of young adults. We're servicing young, hundreds of, of, of K through eight families. 100% of our school is immigrant children. 100% are children of color. So we've got to be intentional at how we hire the faculty because Missio Day for us is to deconstruct the polarization that is the reality in our current climate. What does that mean? Historically, education, especially within the urban pockets of New York City, has looked like this. 100% student body is African-American or Latino, and then 100% of the faculty that does the education is white, Anglo. Now, what happens when you say 
that none of the people groups that are attending this school see themselves in the faculty of education in this school. What you're not saying verbally, you are doing through conditioning. And social conditioning is as such, we have created a margin that the church has yet to wake up and address by not diversifying the faculty in our urban pockets. Now this is not a social issue or a social political issue, this is a theological issue. Because Jesus is not just our soteriological savior, it's not just salvific grace, it's not just us passing through. You know, we sing these songs and we have these prayers. Something in heaven loosed on earth. What happened in this place to the, just a little while ago? You brought the kingdom down here. We had an experience with God. Maybe it was just me. But I'm up in here saying, yo, these cats got to get on YouTube or something because you guys are filled and you worship like you're in love with Jesus. You ever saw Ferris Bueller's day off, Ferris Bueller? Remember the teacher, Ferris Bueller, Ferris Bueller, Ferris Bueller? You know how many ministries I see like that? Oh, I want to save people, I care. But how they look and how they sound doesn't represent that. I want to talk about how the gospel moves. A reflection, that first slide, a reflection in the gospel as a movement. Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, first slide with the text on it. The Bible says this, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. This is Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. 17, uh, sorry, verse seven, chapter 17, starting at verse 1. The Bible says this, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now I wanted to give a parallel and take you to seminary if you will. I lecture uh, pretty much across the country. And matter of fact, let me just give a shout out to Kelly Diaz, who's right over here in the second row. Kelly Diaz, let me tell you something. I travel all over the country and I would be lost if I didn't have Kelly in my life. So thank you, my brother. Your wife is doing a phenomenal job in the ministry. Literally, she coordinates my whole life in travel and expectation and meeting, all of our projects and programs, so thank you. She has made your church proud, her and Sydney. I don't know if Sydney's in the building, but both of them have just been such a blessing to the ministry at City to City. I wanted to reflect on this because in a first century context, we understand that they're dealing with some of the same polarization and issues in Acts uh, 17 that we are dealing with today. Paul and Silas, are dealing with a cultish administration. Now mind you, this is not about socio-political uh, uh, only tensions, but this, this is the reality of where the church is and the church has been in this position before. As I lecture on this, the church historically has been in this position before. And the church in the first century in this context has done better than we have with all our technology in the 21st century context. Listen to me, Paul turns around and as his, was his custom, goes into the synagogue to speak to the Jews, him and Silas. The Bible says, next slide, 
that they did this pretty often. And as some of them were persuaded, and some of them were persuaded, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Now this is, this is very important for us to consider, because Paul steps into a context that number one is under what? Roman pagan rule. This was not a Christian climate or society. The administration was pagan. It was brutal. It was oppressive. The Jews themselves were living and doing ministry in their synagogue in a situation of captivity. They were oppressed on every side. And those that were not oppressed by Rome was because they compromised their integrity and then allowed themselves to be sellouts to their own people. You see this tension with Matthew and all throughout the Gospels. But Paul comes into a context where he is dealing with a people group that, number one, don't know who Jesus is, and they're Jews. What do they believe? They hold on to the Mosaic law. They hold on to the tradition. They hold on to, to, to the teachings of Moses. So he's got to walk in a ministry of apologia, a ministry of explaining and rationalizing and teaching and educating his own people about the Christ. This Christ whom you crucified, he was the Messiah to come. If that itself isn't a challenge, I don't know what is. But on top of that, he's dealing with a social climate that already sees him as an enemy and an undercurrent to the empire. So he's coming in and he's speaking to his own people and the Bible says this, something happens as he starts to preach and starts to teach the message of Jesus. It says that, that many were persuaded by Paul and as did great many, uh, and it says, great many of the devout Greeks. Now, mind you, what is that implication? The implication is that not only is it hard to get a Jewish a person that only believes in Judaism to convert, but you're getting now the syncretistic Hellenist, and you're getting the, uh, the Hellenist-influenced Greek to now convert. They're, they're listening to the same story. The Jew is converting, the Greek is converting, and then it says over here, not a few of the leading women, which means not a few is the opposite. There was, a, there was quite a few of the leading women. What are the social implications of that? The gospel, when it's in movement, crosses social status. The gospel, when it's in movement, it crosses cultural barriers. You got Jews, you got Greeks, you have women, you have free, and you have slave listening to the gospel through Paul and Silas in a climate that's not conducive to preaching or teaching. They're in a situation of oppression, just as the status quo because of the administration that is, that is, that is now occupied Thessalonica. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, are doing ministry in our own country in a situation of occupation. Because we ourselves have got to look at part of the governmental uh, ideologies that are further dividing and separating and segregating some of the cultures and the people we who are missional are trying to reach through our missional efforts. Are you understanding what I'm saying to you, church? So Paul is coming in, he's being an apologist, he's walking in that ministry, He's being an evangelist, he's being a teacher, and then he's being a prophet. And he's doing it under the anointing of the Holy Spirit because no man cometh to the Lord unless what? The Father draw them. So obviously, this ministry is moving. Let me ask you a question. How many people are coming to the Lord because you're talking to them? Let me talk to this side. I think, you know, they're looking at me funny on that side. How many people are converting to Jesus that don't look like you come from your cultural background or context? 
are coming to the Lord because of your ministry. How many people you go into the, you know, downtown court to testify about Jesus are receiving the gospel message and saying, I want, I want the Jesus you're talking about. How many? That's a challenge to the church. It shouldn't just be a challenge. Honestly, it's an indictment against the church. Because I just unpacked for you the socio-political backdrop that Paul is, is doing ministry in, right? But you go to some church climates and what they tell you is, we don't talk politics from the pulpit. But the reality is in the first century, everything was socio-political. Even the word ecclesia is not a congregational theological. It is a socio-polity movement and word. It is a political word. What am I saying? That the gospel moves into social contexts that are not just religious or the four walls of what you call a church. And the reality is, and this is my argument to you, and I feel free, your, your, your conversation, your synthesis, and or your, your, um, uh, your respectful uh, dissent to prove to me uh, that we're not called to go into the public square and say the name of Jesus. Because the Bible says, and from Genesis all the way to Malachi, that every time there was a major or minor prophet, every time they were going to bring thus saith the Lord to someplace or to the administration, it was a king they were speaking to. That king represents an administration. That king represents a system. We see the motif of speaking truth to power from Genesis all the way through Torah. Then when you get to, to Matthew chapter 1, the Genesis Biblos, you see Jesus incarnates in a socio-political reality. Now listen, listen to me. Let me help you with this. This is not cultural Marxism because I'm also reformed in my theology. And this is not social gospel. This is the text. This is the text. This is the history. This is the culture. And what, what the problem is, is that we have selective hermeneutics. We choose to interpret and pull out what we want to pull out and say this is the gospel truth. And the reality is you cannot take half the truth, add a lie to it, and then say this is the truth. You just turn the truth into a lie. Somebody say amen. Come on, somebody. Jesus is dealing with politics and administration in Pontius Pilate. True or false? True. Now, he in himself is silent before the administration, the machine, the system. But there was a prophetic undergirding that called for his silence. If you just look backwards in Torah at Isaiah, the Bible says that he went like a lamb to the slaughterhouse and didn't say a word. There was a prophetic reasoning behind Jesus' silence. My challenge to the church today, my challenge and admonition to this church today is, is to tell you that we are in sin if we are silent on the issues that are crushing the very people we're preaching the gospel to. If we do not turn around and speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. Why did we start a charter school movement? Because poverty is always married to incarceration. Because people that are hungry are gonna move outside of logic and rationale to get what they need to survive. You know what my biggest issue is right now? I don't know if you can tell that I'm an activist. But my biggest issue right now is that how do we justifiably turn around and put a big okay stamp on the sale of cannabis and marijuana all over this country when we've taken generations of African-American men and thrown them in jail forever and ever and ever and ever and ever around the same drug that now 
people are trying to benefit and make money from. How do we justify that in the face of African-American boys and men in our communities and then put Jesus on top of that? Oh, I'm sorry. There is no mass incarceration issue. That's just my own conspiracy theory. Let me help you with that. Paul was not okay with the cult administration of Rome and Thessalonica. This entire chapter is dedicated to the deconstruction of that movement. Because when Paul walked in and he said, Jesus is Lord. When you get to the rest of the chapter, it starts to give a, a, a reason. Matter of fact, let, let, me not, let me not mess it up. Let's go to the next slide. And when they could not find them, I'm sorry, go back up. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul, Silas, as did great many of our Greeks, not a few living women, but the Jews were jealous. Somebody say jealous. jealous. Somebody wake up and say jealous. jealous. Let me tell you something. The minute you start doing something for God, somebody's going to be jealous. That's not even a Pauline or Silas thing or first century thing. The, come on, haters are going to hate. Somebody say you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> haters are going to hate. You know who's walking with you and who's rocking with you for real? When you get promoted and they're saying amen. But when you get promoted and they're silent, you better watch your back, boo. You better watch your back. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar. Listen to me. They set the city in an uproar, Jack. Listen to me. Listen, we're not talking about a campaña de jóvenes. Um, um, I'm sorry. We're not talking about a youth campaign. We're not talking about Billy Graham coming into Central Park. We're not talking about T.D. Jakes going into Madison Square Garden. We're not talking about whoever, the evangelists of whoever, you know, coming in to, the, to, the, to, to downtown Brooklyn. We're talking about a Bible study in Thessalonica. And the Bible says the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. Bro, how many mobs are forming because you're having a Bible study at Bridge Church? How many people are having a mob of indifference form because you're speaking truth to power? Because you're going to say that you can find freedom in the name of Jesus. You don't have to be a black man behind bars. You don't have to be a Latino. You don't have to be someone who's on the margins because he came from the margins and then was crucified at the center. There's a theological implication with that. Jesus didn't incarnate in Jerusalem. He incarnated in Nazareth. Nazareth was the South Bronx of Israel, was the East New York of Israel. And he comes in. That's why they say, can any good thing? Let me tell you, last December, they had a trip with all the bishops from New York to, to Israel. Can I kick this thing? Yeah. I got to know. I'm from the, listen, I'm from the South Boogie. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I look, hey, you know what I mean? I know, I know how to handle my, you could drop me anywhere. I'm from New York. You drop me anywhere. I'm good, son. You get what I'm telling you? I'm going to be good. You know what I'm saying? Look, look. I still got a knuckle, it's in slow motion, but I still got a knuckle game. You know what I'm saying? But I got to Nazareth with the, with the professor leading us. They were selling drugs and I was like. I said, professor, I don't feel safe. Where are we? This man started laughing. Now, listen to me. I'm a big guy, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, you look at me, you know what I'm saying? I throw on a cholo shirt, some shades. You're not even going to talk to me because of how I look. I felt unsafe in Nazareth. 
He said, we in Nazareth. I said, bro, I would think after 2,000 years, there'd have been some gentrification that up. <laughs> Pastor, my life. Josh, come on. After two millennia. 2,000 years, dog? 2,000 years? You couldn't build a building in 2,000 years? No security? They selling drugs. <laughs> you know, and all the other pastors are with me, you know, they're not woke, which means they don't come from the hood. They all come from Yale and Princeton. You know, I came out of ATS, you know what I mean? Alliance Theological Seminary in the hood. Right? I came off the block, so I'm walking in. I'm aware. I'm looking where I'm at. I'm like, wait a minute. Hold on. What's going on around here? These guys are walking like, the Lord is good. And I... I'm a bro. I said, bro, you're going to get shot like that. And I said, my wife did not give me permission to get shot in the Middle East. I got a mortgage, three pit bulls, a dog. Thank you. Oh, I'm a bearer. Give it up for my brother. He's the deacon of us. Because Pastor Josh will let me cough out my tonsils. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Appreciate that. I'm going to let you know the eval I'm going to give on you when your pastor comes back. And they formed a mob and they set a sit the city in uproar and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Bro, how many people are complaining because you're preaching? In your building, in your condo, in your co-op, on the train. Who knows that you're a Christian? Because if they really know, let me tell you something. You really start preaching Jesus, you're going to upset some people. Let me tell you something. I don't care if you got an MDiv, DD, demon. Demon means doctor of ministry, not demon like demon. We got some brothers in the building, you know what I mean? I don't want them... Well, the brothers think, yo, he said people had demons in the church. <laughs> Demon is a credential. I have a doctorate of ministry in concentration on liberation theology. I'm not a liberationist, but I believe in a liberating Christ. And if I'm living off the gospel, this is the problem with our church today, that the gospel goes places that our church feet aren't willing to walk into. Did anybody hear what I just said? In my church in the South Bronx, I would say, can I kick it? They would say, can I kick it? Right? The gospel pulls us into places that we're too dignified and holified, too reformed, too charismatic, too Pentecostal, too tongue-speaking, spirit-dancing to walk into. But Jesus, Jesus, Jesus and those that were in the way in the first century, they popped off wherever they went. Let me translate that for those of you that don't speak hood. They were missionally relevant. I'm multilingual, bro. I gotta... My ministry, I gotta speak... Listen, I speak to pastors all over the country and I gotta speak hood, I gotta speak theology... Latin, Greek, Hebrew, you know, Spanish, Spanglish, country, you know what I mean? I got to speak it all. You know what I'm saying? They formed a mob. They set a city in uproar. And let, 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 let y'all, let resurrection power start manifesting in this place. 
Let me tell you something. Let you and the church that you rent from take away your, de your denominational creeds that separate you and divide you and become one holy Catholic church. Let y'all turn around and get unified. Let y'all turn around and stop rocking a name and start being the church. Let y'all turn around and start really pulling down strongholds. Come on. You do know that the Bible tells you that your weapons of warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What is your life pulling down? What is your ministry pulling down? Because if you're preaching this thing and you're living this thing, something's getting pulled down. Whenever Jesus is lifted up, something got to come down because he is a God that will not be mocked. He is a God that will not give his glory to anybody else. If he's lifted up, everything else got to come down. What ruckus are you starting in Brooklyn? Or y'all busy doing church? Ooh. Let me park over here. You expect the people to walk into this space? But are you walking out there to get them? What kind of person are you looking for? Looking for somebody that can tithe and have an offering? Or can Felipe from the corner with a can of Coke 45 walk up in here and find Jesus? Can Mary, a man with a beard and breast, come up in here, feel safe and find Jesus? Now listen to me, I'm orthodox and conservative, but Bonhoeffer said in Comuno Santorum, right, one of his dissertations, that the house of God, if it's truly the house of God, is a place for all sinners. And no sinner stays the same in the presence of the one true God. So every sinner and every culture and every flavor and everything that is broken should be allowed in here so that it can what? Come down and see who God is through you. You've got an amazing, you have no idea what you have in your worship team. I just came from a church. We just came three hours. We just drove here two hours. Two hours in a church. They didn't have none of this. They had none of this. None of it. They were playing with pistas. That's, um, they had tracks. They were, and they brought down the kingdom with tracks. Let me tell you something, son. Can you lose all of this and still worship Jesus? Can you? Come on, come on, come on, come on. Come on. Can you lose everything in this place and still give Jesus the glory? I was lecturing, I was lecturing yesterday at our church, and I said, I said, the, the church from Acts on is a transient movement. In the upper room, and this is a little bit of part two, in the upper room, the church becomes endowed with power. The place is shaking because there's unity. Unity always shakes the place. Did you hear what I just said? A unified church always shakes it's wherever it's at. But the birthing of the ecclesia happens in the street, not in the upper room. You get the power in private, but the power you get in private is for the public ministry. Did you hear what I said? All this worship and all this anointing and all this, all this, this concert you got going on, this ain't for y'all. This ain't for you. I mean, it's nice, but put it out on the street. I said it. Put it out on the street. Matter of fact, go put it in the middle of the projects. Come on. And then pray with one eye open.
Because if you grew up in the projects I grew up in, you know, they was always throwing things out the window. I'm just... I'm keeping it 100. But some cats, some ministries, they're too dignified to walk into Brownville. They're too dignified to walk into East New York. They're too dignified. Somebody invited me to Camden. Camden is like worse than the South Bronx. And they said, oh my, you're going to Camden? Why not? Why not? Why? If it's broken, it needs fixing. If it's dark, it needs light. Who, who in this place is arguing with God about an assignment? And you're saying, no, I ain't going there. That's, that's, that, that's, that's scary. Who in this place is arguing with the Lord? Let me, let me, I'm, I'm going to pause this. You better, uh, obedience is better than sacrifice. I'm going to go back to the sermon. I don't know who that was for. That was just for y'all. I don't know. And attack the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. I've got three minutes to drop this like it's hot. Next slide. Listen to this. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. And when they found, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down. Their Bible study turned Thessalonica upside down. When was the last time your sermon turned anything upside down? Matter of fact, when was the last time you did a sermon search or you did a study or you did a, a, a you know, a, a paper and, and it affected you? I'm in ministry 30 years. I know I look good, but I'm, I'm old, right? Grandkids in the whole nine, right? Right? But I still get convicted in my study. As I, as I, if I, as I allow the Lord to break me and to, and to stretch me and to challenge me, does your study time still bring you to your knees and weep and lamentation for the ministry context he's called you to? Or are you going through the motions? Are you challenged like Paul? Because when they did ministry and they preached in their ministry and they testified and they turned around, they had to face the principalities and the powers, which were not demons, but they were the administration of Rome. That's the context. The justification of their faith was the reality that their faith cost them something. Western Christianity is so diluted, so egocentric, so poisoned by capitalism that we've lost the essence of cost and sufferings of Christ. We want to embrace three principles and a smile and say, this is spiritual formation, and it's not. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Matthew 16, 24, 25. Ministry should cost you something, and if it's not costing you something, then you're really not doing ministry. It costs me something to be here. It costs me something to go to Camden. And I'm not talking about paper. It costs me time. It cost me, and I'll give it and pay it again for the glory of my king because it's not my life anymore. <laughs> See, that's the problem. That's the problem. Henry Blackaby, one of your folk in the Baptist convention, he says, you can't go there and still stay here. You can't embrace something new if your hands are full. And you cannot step into a life with the Holy Spirit without making modifications to your life. And the church has got to modify the neutrality and silence it has embraced. And one of the most challenging times in our history. We need to start a riot. We need to 
have a Bible study that's rocking the block. We need to make this place safe for all people. And we need to walk in a ministry the way these guys did and emptied out everything regardless of what the, the cost was. It says this, they're turning the city upside down. And that was because Paul was talking about Jesus and the Jesus narrative always turns things right side up. They said the city was upside down, but Paul was preaching a message that was right side up. This is the first part. I hope to see you next Sunday. Here, part two. God bless you. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.